Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It is idealistic, but the money is out there. The world is in turmoil. That much is clear. The scale of the problem seems insurmountable. But while the old adage goes that money can't buy happiness, it probably can buy a solution that would put a smile on all our faces. If I offered you a million dollars, that would probably sound like a lot of money. If I gave you a billion, you would barely be able to comprehend that number. So what if I were to put you in charge of a trillion dollars? After you'd bought yourself a nice house and made sure your family were looked after, what would you do with the rest? That's the premise of a thought experiment dreamt up by author and New Scientist podcast presenter Rowan Hooper. He has spent a great deal of time considering this very question in his latest book, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars. And I'm delighted to say that he's my guest today. Chapter 1. Spending the Money When we buy lottery tickets, it's not uncommon to start listing all the things we'd buy if we were to win. We'd consider the new house, the holidays we might go on, whether or not we'd give any to our friends. But how many of us think bigger? Maybe lottery money isn't enough to grease our creative cogs. But with an amount like a trillion dollars, there's a seemingly endless list of ways you can spend that money. And that's what makes this thought experiment far more complicated than it seems. It started with the daydream of what would I do if I won the lottery? And with a bit of irritation, to be honest, with when you sometimes get newspaper reports of people who've won the lottery and they say, no, I'm not going to spend it on anything. Uh, It's not going to change my life. And I think, no, you've got all that money. (laughs) Spend it, you know. And then it is is like, well, what would I spend it on? And then I thought, well, let's make it a bit more fun um, and give myself more money than you could ever even win on the lottery. And a trillion dollars was a nice round number. And it's 1% of world GDP. So it's it seems like a good good number to play around with. And I set myself some rules, though, that I wasn't allowed to use it for military. So I couldn't use it for evil ends. Uh, I couldn't do it for sort of empire building or for media or for politics. So, you know, you could think about lobbying and a lot of money would be spent on. You could do a lot of good or bad with uh, if you lobbied with that, that sort of money. But I I didn't. I wanted to take that off the table and have the rules that you have to use the money uh, for the good of humanity or to advance science or to protect the environment. So they were the rules I gave myself. It's quite an interesting intellectual challenge. And I found myself getting considerably more drawn in than perhaps I might otherwise, because it's a very personal thing, isn't it? You, you might think, and I love what you say about lottery winners. When Whenever I hear it won't change me, I yeah. always think that then you're not doing it right. Yeah. In that case, the money is wasted. But I started to think about how I might spend the money. And, and whilst I don't disagree with any of the things that you chose in the book, I was very surprised about how expensive it would be to make the world vegan, you know, as a personal view. You've got a figure of like 900 billion dollars to turn the the world vegan how did you go about choosing these things as you say it's about for the betterment of of the world or the advancement of of science one that does the the latter for example advances science 
is very different than making the, the world vegan, for example. How did you come up with the list that you that you eventually settled on? Because presumably there could have been 20, 30 more of these things. Yeah, well, there was a long list. I did have a long list of other things. Um, one filter I put on the list was they all had to be things that were being done now on a smaller scale around the world in different labs and different projects. So it had to be something that you could accelerate that was already being done by putting pouring money into it not something that would be really nice but is is too far off in the future so you know that might be something i did consider building a space elevator uh, so you could get into low earth orbit really easily and people want people are thinking about this but it's a long way off still because we don't have the materials so you know that's off the lit that didn't make the shortlist so it became a mixture of things that i thought sort of initially thought that would be fun and that would be really cool to do like you know go and explore some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn in much more depth than we we do we are doing at the moment and some things that are more like we really need to do this because uh well morally we really need to do it or we need to do it to save the world <laughs> so uh you know it became a mixture of of those sorts of things but the the fundamental thing is they all are things that are possible right now just need to be accelerated with a bit of money. I was surprised by how much it made me think about morals and ethics and the responsibility of this money. Yeah. With particular, you talk in the introduction about the lens of COVID-19 and how that's made a lot of people think about how we spend money. But we do have this gray area of, of vaccine politics, don't we? There, that, that's a very present problem that we've got at the moment. Clearly, richer countries have got more than perhaps they need. And ideally, you might think, well, we should perhaps give that to other countries. And then you might think, yeah, but I haven't had my second jab yet. So I'd quite like that before before we do it. Ethics is a huge part of this book, isn't it? You have really thought about some of the challenges. Can I ask you about the race to do certain things and, and the role that that plays in, in ethics? It's just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should. And some people might be doing things to serve their own interests rather than for the good of the world. There's a danger that we spend money for the few, not the many, isn't there? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think there is. Um, and that's what it would be nice to do it is quite idealistic in a way. Um, a lot of the things in this book, because it, it's about leveling out some of the opportunities that that there are out there that are only available to people with huge amounts of money or in a particularly privileged country. So it's about making things equitable in many cases. So it might be in vaccines or in medical care or in income or in, you know, access to the moon, you know. So in many different ways, it's about making things equitable. But it's funny because, it, yeah, it very initially started as, as a this could be fun. How would you spend all this money? And then suddenly it, it it really felt, it did weigh upon me, like the responsibility of having this money that doesn't exist, that I don't have, of course not. But um, it is funny how that sort of ethical responsibility, I, I began to feel it and think, oh, I, I can't spend that money there. I've got to put it here. And, you know, as if it, I'm really making the decisions about this. And some of the people I spoke to took it very seriously as well, which is great really great you know and 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 that enabled me to really think about what you could do with this money and uh, you know that's that's what became powerful about it 
you write in the in one of the early chapters about a scientist who said that actually this was irresponsible and that what you should do is is give all the money away. I don't know yeah. whether he thought that you actually had a trillion dollars in your in your bank account, but that was quite a strong reaction, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. He was the only one who didn't play the game that you know that I'd set up in the book. Like, imagine you had this money and you had to spend it on this certain project. He was like, "No, I'm I, I'm not playing that game." You know, even as, no, it's like, but it is only thought experiment, and it, nope, it's immoral. You have to give it away. So you know, actually, initially, I hadn't planned to give away all the money as one of the projects in the book. And then after he said that, I was initially irritated that he wouldn't play the game. And then I thought, well, actually, what could you do? What would happen? And and that was an amazing thing. You know, I, I looked into all the projects that have been doing cash transfers to people in extreme poverty and then followed them for years or months and years afterwards to find out what happens after they've been given a cash transfer. And, uh, you know, some of the evidence is amazing. It, it really can lift people out of poverty, a, a one-off cash transfer. It turns out with a trillion dollars, you could you could pretty much lift up all the people at the lo- on the lowest rung of poverty in the world out of extreme poverty, which is um, just a, a, an extraordinary thing. And once you realise you could do that with this money, then everything else that you could do with it feels like, well, is it worth, for example you know, going to space exploration, doing all that really cool stuff when when actually right here and now you can lift all those people, millions of people out of poverty. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you talked about colonizing the moon, for example, here's what I felt about that. I I wondered whether if we were to do that, um, we'll we'll chuck in half a trillion each, Rowan, and and we, we each get a vote. I might be tempted to say, that to spend the money on space exploration, as an example, is that admitting that we've already screwed the planet that we're on and therefore we're just sort of leaving that to go and do else, other things? Or are we doing it to allow the planet that we're on sufficient time to heal for future generations? But I couldn't get past the fact that we are entirely reliant on things like food banks and donations. And there have been huge stories during lockdown about how people really are living on the limits of what they can afford to do. Even people who you might think would not have a problem. Furlough perhaps doesn't give them the funds that they need. If they live in a in a flat share, for example, all of a sudden young people lose their job. They are immediately reliant on benefits. And there's a level below that of people that don't have enough money to feed themselves. It's When you get into it, it it's astonishing about the power and responsibility of this money. And I got angry because, as you point out in the book, that money is there. Yeah. You could, we could find it tomorrow if we just yeah. were able to, to ring Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. We could probably raise most of the money, couldn't we? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The money's there. There's, there's more than enough. Like, uh, you know, I think I say somewhere that the richest 1% in the world owns $162 trillion in assets. And I'm only talking about one trillion, the amount of things you could do with that. So, yeah, I mean, people do, especially with space exploration stuff, people say, critics say, well, you can't spend it on that because we've got people starving. But it's not, I don't think it's, it's never a choice like you're taking away from that and giving it to space exploration. You, you know, you could do both things. You can do both things. There's plenty of money for all the things in the book, actually, to be done. You just have to not do some of the more, I would say, 
wasteful things that we're doing um, and that would include fossil fuel subsidies which goes into the trillions um, and people don't I don't think people need 162 trillion you know one percent of the world don't need 162 trillion dollars just sitting around so um, yeah it is idealistic but the money is out there and that's the that's the kind of point of it that wouldn't it be nice if we could get hold of some of that and these are some things we could do with it Chapter two, and the winner is. If everyone had a choice in how the trillion dollars were spent, we wouldn't necessarily all pick the same thing. The money would probably be split in every which way and end up not nearly as useful. But if we were to make a democratic decision and everyone got to vote for an idea from Rowan's list, is there one idea that would emerge a clear victor? Or perhaps there's certainly one which should be a clear winner. Yeah, yeah, it's climate change. Um, and, and most people say straight away, you know, it's got to be spent on climate change. Although that in itself is a gigantic subject and there's many different ways you could spend it. So this, this basically, I come at that in four different ways in the four different chapters of the book. And the biodiversity crisis is not strictly speaking climate change as we think of, you know, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas in the atmosphere um, but they're very intimately linked and the biodiversity crisis is just as bad as the climate crisis so i would say tackling the the twin crises of biodiversity and climate change is is the way that i would i would spend the money if i really did have it and the one that emerges as the the most important thing in the book in series one of the show i interviewed professor lewis dartnold who'd written a book um in a similar set of rules really in an imaginary post-apocalypse world called how to rebuild the world from scratch and and it was you know how long could you survive um with the contents of a supermarket and and he came up with this set of rules well well it depends if you're prepared to eat pet food as an example because you could you know extend it the conceit of the game is a is a nice way into the subject but Actually, I think when you take a step back and you think, if I had a trillion, what would I do? I know how it's made me feel. Has it made you not perhaps question, but reflect on your own life and the choices that that you make day to day and what's important to you? Yeah, yeah, very much so um, in lots of different ways. So, I mean, I, I guess I was already going there somewhat with, um, you know, like guilt about flying, for example, and and the food I eat that's only come into sharper focus when I was researching the chapter on agriculture and 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 food wastage and, and stuff like that. So that, yeah, I do think about that all the time with the food we eat, because, you know, I think that's underappreciated generally by people that, you know, food waste, for example, if food waste was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases after China and the US. And cows, just the entity of cows in the world there's so many cows in the world they also are the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gases so you know we think about flying and you know electric cars and putting wind turbines but agriculture is a gigantic problem and we really need to to tackle it otherwise uh, the world is doomed so you know that it does reflect i do you know constantly reflect on that in my everyday life as countries get richer, eating habits change and the consumption of meat goes up. That would only need to happen on small percentage levels for potentially it to have a catastrophic impact 
But that made me think about something. Are we morally able to tell countries that haven't had the early opportunities that perhaps Western countries have had that they shouldn't be doing certain things? I can see why we might do it, but I can also see how that might land with a country that is, you know, well within their rights to say, well, I kind of, you know, I want to have a steak or I want to eat more pork or why should we suffer? Because, you know, we haven't had these opportunities. Mm. Well, so I think that's where perhaps where artificial meat comes in or lab grown meat and you can give them that um, people can can happily eat uh, what would effectively be an actual steak or pork chop or whatever. Um, once we've got the tech developed a bit more, will that, you know, lab grown meat will be at the same standard as uh, stuff we've got from a farm. So that's one side of things. But the other thing, people often say that with respect to coal mining and coal power stations in India and China. And those countries say, well, look, you guys had the industrial revolution and you've you've made all your money by massively polluting the the atmosphere. Um, now it's our turn. What how how dare you tell us not to do it? And that's an that's a fair point. So that uh, what I would do with some of the money then is say, okay, here's some money to leapfrog the fossil fuel stage and go straight to renewables. This would be much better for your local environment, for your economy, job creation. Uh, and all sorts of things, and you could, you know, go straight over the the horribly polluting coal industry and and, and fossil fuel stage, and go to renewables. Um, so it is a a powerful ethical problem that you have to tackle. Like we can't dictate to other countries or other people what they should do, but this is about offering uh, different alternatives that will be just as good, and if not better, both personally and for the planet. I'm often reminded when I think about issues like this, Kofi Annan, when he was at the um, United Nations, was he said this a lot. He would always say um, something like, and I may misquote him, but African problems need African solutions. And in a way, what you just said fits into that. If you give money to help, very simple example, the lack of landline telephony in Africa or across Africa, very simply, well, you can just move straight to mobile telephony rather than build, you know, expensive landlines. The giving of money to enable certain countries to perhaps invest in green infrastructure projects or things that will, you know, give them an advantage is an interesting one because what you're saying is you don't have to follow the same model that we've done. You don't have to make the same mistakes that we've done. I think in order to advance science or make the world a better place, we're not dictating here. We just step out of the confines of the game that you've created. We can't dictate. It has to be done at a local level. But what you've done is very clearly define the art of the possible. These things could happen, even AI. And I'd like to talk a little bit about AI. Everything in this book is costed, could be funded, and could happen. Why isn't it? (laughs) Well, it is happening. It all is happening, but very slowly. Um, and, and so that is part of the rationale of the book is to accelerate. And it's being frustrated with the, you know, sometimes the pace of scientific change. It takes so long. These There's loads of cool things that are just not being discovered fast enough or we're not getting into space fast enough. Um, and certainly with environmental and medical problems, we're not solving them fast enough or getting the solutions out there. Um, and so they're all doable. But um, it's about accelerating all of those things and and doing it more quickly. 
but at the moment it's being dominated by it's certainly things like in AI um, and in space, China and the US are, are massively dominating those. And and then also private individuals are dominating certain areas as well. And in AI, certain companies like Google. So this is about, again, trying to smooth that over and making it a bit more equitable and, and not, not allowing um, either individuals or countries to to completely dominate some fields which are you know massively important um globally chapter three the bigger picture it's interesting to consider that most people would agree climate change reigns victorious in the long list of issues that should be tackled with a trillion dollars It's interesting because it seems we still fail to hold ourselves personally accountable in many ways for our own carbon footprint. We're certainly improving, and we understand better than ever the impact we have as individuals, but when you find out that in the UK we waste close to 50% of all the bread that we make, it makes you wonder how seriously we're taking the issue. Rowan's book has made me think twice, and it seems that what began as a thought experiment has become a real call to action. Yeah, it is. It's a definite call to arms. But, you know, I, I do agree that uh, personally we should all be doing things, but I, I don't want to that to take any of the pressure off of sort of states and governments because it really, big change has to be led at that level as well. And, um, you know, they've got to start doing really, really big things. So, you know, hopefully we'll see that um, with President Biden um, he's already trying. Well, he's trying to get through a, a two trillion dollar um, climate bill, green stimulus bill, and we can only hope that the the Chinese will set themselves also similar uh, ambitious targets and leadership. If we were setting this up on Kickstarter, I think I would like to think we live in a world in which you'd get this funded very very quickly. I think you be oversubscribed very, very quickly because the amount of money that goes through Kickstarter on a regular basis, um, you know, is there. Have you been surprised by the, the reaction to this? Is it is it actually? Let me let me rephrase this. Is a trillion enough? Is it too much? It's an arbitrary figure. I get it, but because it's the one percent of, of global GDP, what if you had two trillion or, or ten trillion? You know, yeah. have you thought about that? If if you raise your you raise your trillion on the likes of Kickstarter and then you so successful with climate change that your backers are then let's do more row and we'll give you yeah. more money. You thought about what you could do if you had more money. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, I, I think if I only had a trillion, uh, I would do it. I would spend it on a, a joint biodiversity and climate change project that would basically buy us time to get our house in order. If I had more than a trillion, I'd start to do some of the other projects in the book but some of them, the funny thing is, some of them are, are quite cheap, surprisingly cheap to do, um, and some of them take mu- far more than a than a trillion. And but the, the money would start the ball rolling, or or accelerate that snowball effect that's already happening, but just give it a, a bigger push. So you know, transitioning the, globally to net zero, that's going to cost that will cost about a hundred trillion over the next um, 20, 30 years. So that's well outside the scope of if even my imaginary crazy amount of money but it all start the investment starts to make its own money so especially if you're investing in uh, a green electrical grid 
green technology, offshore wind, and all of those things, they start to generate their own revenue, and then they they just grow and grow and grow. So you wouldn't have to have that entire trillion or hundred trillion and just sort of it's not being thrown away. It's it's building itself up, and you get money back. And actually, that was the same in many of the different projects I looked at. That the money that you invest. Well, it is an investment. It grows. It creates its own money. It's not money thrown away. It's it's actually money saved. So if you don't spend this money on some of the projects, you end up spending more to try to undo the damage you've done. And that's the same with health, health problems and poverty, as well as the more sort of obvious problems of climate change and biodiversity. You've talked about you know some of the things that you could do with all the money, the elimination of disease being um, a huge step forward for humanity. But you, what you just said there about you know offshore wind farms, there was a statistic that came out at some point last year, we were for the first time producing 50% of all of the power that we were using in the country from wind, which is incredible to think that that is actually possible. We are an island, a very windy island, and we can harness that for good. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has sort of set his stall out on green um, projects, particularly green tech moving forward. There is a lot of money available. There are a lot of people interested in those sorts of projects at the moment, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, Bill Gates, I thought you were going to mention him. He's the other one who's very much been pushing and investing large amounts of money in technological solutions. Um, So that might be carbon capture and storage or... Um, new kinds of nuclear power, which um, he thinks is going to be part of the solution. Well, I think it probably is as well, actually, part of the solution. So lots of people who might be, you might think of as more sort of conventional in terms of embedded in the capitalist system that we have and that we've all enjoyed. Um, and that so that would include Bill Gates and the Prime Minister and those sorts of level people. You know, they like solutions where you just, pay for something and build up a, a technological solution because it's it's what they're used to. So I think that that's great. But I do think you, we're going to need something a bit more, a bigger shift in consumption and the way we live in order to really get over the problems we're facing. As a game, it's it's fascinating. As a thought experiment, it is deeply interesting and, and and profound in certain respects as in terms of the impact that it had on me and the way I look at the world. Setting aside the fact that it is a game, you have laid out a blueprint for what might be possible. And I think that if people take one thing from that, it should probably be, maybe, maybe they shouldn't give you the trillion, but maybe if this is a set of things that could be done with a trillion, you know, we could create some form of body that would actually, you know, go ahead and, and do it. It's been a pleasure not just reading the book, but speaking with you. Rowan Hooper, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure chatting. Great to chat. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Rowan Hooper for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? If you keep stumbling across more and more fascinating research for your book, you may find it hard to pare down the content So try setting yourself some rules on what you can and can't talk about. If it goes against one of those rules, then bin it. Having a trillion dollars seems wild, but just the mere idea of considering how you'd spend it offers a strange sense of ethical and moral responsibility. 
If you're struggling to connect with a character that you're writing, try seeing the world as they would walk a mile in their shoes. Start to believe that you really are them, and you'll find that connection. Rowan was initially irritated that someone wouldn't play his thought experiment game. But even that rejection was put to use in his book. Don't ignore an idea or piece of advice just because it doesn't seem useful on the surface. Dig deeper and see where it takes you. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let us know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode and do share any suggestions for future guests or discussions. We'd love to hear from you. You can either give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Behind the Spine. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.